Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, Anna Komnena was a princess, the daughter of the Byzantine Emperor Alexius I. Well-educated in her youth, she was a witness to the great events of her father's reign, including the events of what we now call the First Crusade. In her later years, she became a historian, writing the story of that her father's life and his reign, and this she did in the seclusion of a monastery, which she had entered after her husband's death, a husband which contemporaries allege she had plotted to place on the throne, overthrowing her own brother. With me to discuss this fascinating woman and her work is, as part of our continuing series on important historians and their histories, is Leonora Neville. She is the John W. and Jean M. Rowe Professor of Byzantine History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her most recent book is Anna Komnena, The Life and Work of a Medieval Historian, published by Oxford University Press this September 1st. So, Leonora, thank you for being with us. Thank you. So um, first we have to deal with the the elephant in the room, the enormous uh, iconic elephant in the room, which is that most educated people uh, know more about China, medieval China, than they know about Byzantium. So what is Byzantium exactly? Byzantium is a lot of fun. And I think if more people knew about it, it would enhance their lives because it's intellectually a really interesting puzzle. The classical Roman Empire ruled the entire Mediterranean. They ruled from Hadrian's Wall up in England all the way over through Egypt and Syria. They ruled uh, what's now modern Turkey and Greece and North Africa and Spain. And in the course of the fifth century, the Western Roman Empire was conquered by various different groups and broke up into a series of smaller successor kingdoms. People who've taken classes on Western civilization uh, would always refer to this as the fall of Rome. So when Sophia Loren is in her movie about the fall of Rome, that's what we're talking Mm. about. Mm. However, the eastern half of the Mediterranean didn't get conquered. So uh, what's now Greece and Turkey and Egypt and Syria uh, continued to be part of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years after the Western Mediterranean broke up into smaller kingdoms. The Arabs conquered Syria and um, Egypt in the 7th century. But what's now Turkey and Greece and Cyprus uh, continued in political continuity with the Roman Empire. And if you think about it, those regions had been conquered by the Romans well before uh, you know, the first century B.C., right? So by the time we get to the sixth century, they've been the Roman Empire for 700 years. And in what we now call late antiquity, by the third, fourth, and fifth centuries, they liked being part of the Roman Empire. Any disturbance or difficulty that they'd had of becoming incorporated into this Roman Empire were resolved already. And they had a very strong civic sense that they were the polity of the Romans. 
Right? And they continued to be the polity of the Romans all the way up into the 13th century when they were conquered by the forces of the Fourth Crusade in 1204. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I what's called Byzantium. Mm-hmm. Why this word Byzantine? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That came about uh, in the 1550s and 1560s when scholars in Western Europe were studying this period. And they had very strong ideas that the classical Roman Empire was pre-Christian. Their main conception, in sort of this later Renaissance part, of antiquity was that it was pagan. It was pre-Christian. It was before we had, um, you know, sort of the religion. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so they thought once the empire became Christian and was in, in the East, it couldn't possibly be the Roman Empire. So when Edward Gibbon published his history on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which came out the same time our Constitution was ratified, um, 1789, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Then he said that the Roman Empire fell because of the dual forces of religion and barbarism. Right. right? He said that it was Christianity and the barbarians that killed the Roman Empire. Yeah. Which left yeah. him with a little bit of a problem in his theory because the half of the Roman Empire didn't fall anytime near when it became Christian or when the barbarians showed up. Yeah, he wrote, so all, he started, yeah, he wrote yeah. all about it too. He keeps on writing even after that. He wrote all the way to 1453. Yeah, he keeps on going. He can't stop, right? But he somehow has to say this isn't the real Roman Empire. Right. So he sort of dismisses it as sort of, he says at one point that um, it subsisted for 1,058 years in a state of premature and perpetual decay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just the kind of thing that Gibbon would say. So he dismisses it, right? And that dismissal is really important for the narrative of Western civilization, which starts... Sorry, that's my phone. Um, uh, that starts in Greece and then goes through Rome and gets to Italy by the time we have the Renaissance, and then we have goes to England. And by you know, Western civilization always ends up in Boston in the 18th century, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that narrative is really disrupted by having a vibrant, continuing classical. Roman Empire all the way through the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Now, having, having said that, of course, Byzant- Byzantium changes in um, marked ways. We've addressed, alluded to the Christianity. Um, right. The second thing is that it preserves its, the eastern part of the Roman Empire had all, all, always been a predominantly Greek-speaking area, and of it Greek becomes then its official language rather than Latin. Um, but there are other changes as well. How would we characterize those quickly, briskly, and what sort of periods do Byzantine historians today divide up the to conceptualize the empire, culture, history? Um, we would think of what the period of late antiquity, uh, going from you know around the time of Jesus up through the seventh century, as a time in which the empire is bilingual in Greek and Latin, though Greek is the primary language of the East, and in terms of um, culture. Uh, it has deep connections with the second sophistic culture of the classical Mediterranean. Um, and it becomes, and that's the era in which 
people figure out how you can be both Greek and like classical rhetoric and uh, practice Christianity, right? So, and that's a real period of development of Christianity. The next sort of era in Byzantine history would be from like the seventh century up until the 13th century. And that's when um, it's very much Greek. You wouldn't expect people to know Latin as well, even if you're very well educated. And there's less controversy about religion. They've got orthodoxy more or less worked out. And with, you know, a few exceptions, um, the era of great doctrinal controversies has been settled, Uh right? And so there's a consistent view about the nature of God and Jesus and the world that's, you know, with some changes lasts throughout that whole period. And it's a period in which the Eastern Empire has at least uh, um, initially much more power and money and technological advances vis-a-vis the surrounding, um, most of the surrounding peoples. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is an era in which um, Slavs and Bulgars and Rus uh, become uh, Christian Mm -hmm. slowly in the course of this era. And Constantinople has a high prestige uh, as one of the great cities of the world. And then, and then, uh, then the empire is conquered by the Crusaders. The Crusaders arrive during Anna's lifetime, the uh, very end of the 11th century, and Western European powers become more predominant in the era um, in the 12th century. Um, there's also in the 11th century, in the decades before Anna was born. Uh, there are invasions of Seljuk Turks. Yeah, spoiler alert. Look at yeah. yeah. Yes, good yeah. forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, they're, uh, the Turks conquer Baghdad in 1055, and they move into uh, sort of Western Armenia and Eastern Turkey in the 1070s. Mm-hmm. And so there are military difficulties happening for the empire on their eastern border. And in the western border, Normans, you know, cousins of the guys who conquered England, start conquering Sicily in southern Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they start trying to conquer Greece as well in the 1070s and 1080s. What are some of the, uh, 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 so let's let's stick with this. What are some of the other um, social intellectual changes that are happening in the 11th century in Byzantium, but in the decades preceding Anna's mm-hmm. birth? Right. It's interesting because it's an era where it seems as if the economy is growing a lot. Mm-hmm. So the empire is becoming much more wealthy and the government is not able to keep control of the um, taxation very well, right? So even though the economy is doing better, the fiscal state of the empire goes through a total tailspin and their currency becomes wildly devalued. So in the course of the 1060s and 1070s, the gold coins become really debased. And so the government can't pay people very well. It can't collect taxes. So, and at that same era, there are huge fights among the aristocracy about who should be emperor. So we have an era of hotly contested civil wars amongst various aristocrats who all think they should become emperor. We, the, we should probably explain, I mean, how does the, uh, in a way, the Romans never really sorted out the whole emperor problem. I mean, is, yeah. is it prima- that never really first nope. son? It just, uh, it's elective? Is it both? Is it, you know, whoever's the last person standing, uh, you know? Um, 
No, all of the above. Cage fighting. Yeah. What they don't have any sense that one family is in any way sacred. Right. All right. Anyone should inherit it because of their blood. Um, if you're a good, strong emperor and you happen to have a son, you crown him as soon as you can and have him rule with co-emperor, and you sure hope that he's going to be accepted as emperor when you're gone. So there are some dynasties. There's lots of dynastic disruption. If you are doing a lousy job, clearly God doesn't like you anymore, and you're a tyrant rather than emperor, and everybody is justified in trying to overthrow you. <laughs> and if someone overthrows you and succeeds and gets to Constantinople and is crowned and acclaimed, right, then he's the one that God wanted to be emperor and the other yeah. guy was a tyrant, right? And if you... It's like capt succeed, capture the flag, divine capture the flag. That's right. It's... <laughs> It's really a free for all, yeah. and there's, um, you know, the the periods in which you have dynastic stability are great, but the periods in which you don't get really bloody really fast, um, and it's something that they never really came up with a solution to. So you need support of the army and the people of Constantinople, and you need to get acclaimed, um, and you you basically you have to get crowned in Hagia Sophia if it's really going to stick. Um, What's and then, go ahead, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Then, well, then you you uh, have the top job so for as long as you can hold on to it. Mm -hmm. What's the social structure of the of the empire, and say in 1025, um, before everything goes to smash in the 11th century? I mean, we've got. I mean, you've met, you've made several references to Constantinople. The empire is much bigger than that in 1025. I mean, right. it's really starting to push into its old, you know, mm -hmm. bounds. So, but Constantinople is like a center of gravity. It's a sort of a, it's the big, big planet drawing everything into its orbit. But there yep. is Greece and Turkey and lots yeah. of the Balkans and so on. Mm -hmm. Um. How does that all fit together? <laughs> Quick, in, in like three minutes. Yeah, most of our information comes from Constantinople because that's right. where most of the educated people were. So it's a little hard to tell what's going in other places. The uh, Up until the middle of the 11th century, the emperors were really good at getting people to think it was so awesome to have an imperial title and to be called, you know, some, some title that makes you a servant of the emperor, but you're actually ruling your own part of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, that you would... You could come every year at Easter time and get a salary in gold coins from the emperor's own hand. And then you would go back to your provincial town and you would be the guy who had met the emperor. So you'd gone to Constantinople, you had these gold coins and somehow or other you got uh, the people around your area to obey you and get along with you. Mm. Um, and the government was as thus very loose Right. So there's not a whole lot of real intervention from the capital in all these provincial societies. But the provincial elites are more or less happy to gain the prestige of being on the emperor's side. Uh, and they're giving enough money in taxes to the emperor. I mean, those same gold coins you got at Easter, you give them back in <laughs> September. Right. Yeah. And that's your taxes. Um, so it's uh, a culture in which bonds of honor and loyalty count for a lot. And there's not a whole lot of muscle that the emperor is using to keep you um, uh, under wraps. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless you look like you're going to revolt, in which case he sends an army after you and, and squashes you and takes all your stuff mm -hmm. and exiles you. Mm -hmm. So no one wants to revolt. But so long as you're not revolting, you can do whatever you want mm -hmm. is my basic uh, take on this. Um, 
and then these bonds of, of loyalty and these very symbolic exchanges of titles seem to lose a lot of their power in the 11th century, right? Um, and by 1025, I mean, that's that's the date of the death of, of Basil the Bulgar Slayer, who's one of the most aggressive military emperors. He had changed a lot of situations where you had peripheral elites who were sort of ruling their own kingdoms, but more or less loyal or allied to the empire. Mm-hmm. And he had actually annexed their kingdoms and taken over their territory. So he expanded the border a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Right? And he'd given all of those princes, they swapped lands. All right, I'll take your, your territory in Armenia and I'll give you a nice little estate in Cappadocia and you'll be fine. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that extended the border of the empire up tremendously by 1025. Um, and it's not really clear that he had much of a plan for how he was actually going to keep control of that stuff mm-hmm. and how he was actually going to, to more effectively tax it than the previous local systems of patronage and exploitation. Mm-hmm. Right. So this kind of um, extension of the empire, I think a lot of scholars would agree that it was in some ways an overextension of the empire and it didn't have a whole lot of structural integrity. <laughs> yeah. So certainly when he when he caught the um, when he caught the car, he didn't know what to do with it. I mean, and right. he he died before that problem came up. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, and then, go on. Yeah. All those regions then were ostensibly supposed to be using the Byzantine gold supply for the money supply, right? And that's why they simply didn't have enough coins, right? In a pre-modern economy, they didn't have the Federal Reserve regulating the currency in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Rather, they was just they started to print more gold coins because they needed more circulation. And they adulterated the gold. They made the coins smaller. They all yeah. the usual things. Yeah. Right. They may they kept putting other um, things, other metals in them, yeah. uh, and that didn't work. Um, so w- here we have an economic crisis. We have a turbulence. Uh, we have many emperors by the middle by 1050. Uh, we're <laughs> cycling through emperors rather rapidly, as I recall. Right. Uh, um, we've got uh, the Turks, and then we've got the Battle of Manzikert. Was that 1070? Mm-hmm. Which is 1071. Uh, yeah. Uh, 1071, which is a massive and traumatic defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, which loses, does that lose central Anatolia by that time or, or? They don't, well, it, it leads to the, uh, the Turks con- they capture the emperor, yeah. uh, which leads, which is to not good. Emperor. Never. It's never it's good. War. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So his supporters and his, his, um, wife's former husband's children, uh, immediately go to war. And it's in the context of that, that the Turks conquer central Anatolia and they're all the way up to Nicaea. Mm-hmm. By the time by 1081, which is when Alexis Komnenos takes over, 50 miles from Constantinople itself, the uh, yeah. Nicaea. Um, yeah. So now, finally, to Alexios and the Komnena family. Um, who are they? Where do they come from? What's their background? Go. Mm-hmm. Go. Alexios Komnenos was the second son of one of the people who was involved in the civil wars of the 1060s and 1070s. His uncle Isaac was emperor for two or three years in the late 1050s, and he got sacked. Um, so he's in a family that's one of these um, very military, very rich, uh, powerful families that thinks they should have a shot at being emperor. But he's not the most the, in contention, 
right? Mm -hmm. There are other people who have a much better shot at the job. And so he keeps working throughout his young life for someone who has a better shot of being emperor than he does. Mm -hmm. Uh, and no one's really taking him seriously as a threat, which means that he is able to uh, gain more and more power and authority. So he works for a succession of uh, two or three different emperors as their lead general and puts down revolts for them. So he spends most of his time fighting revolts of other you know, Byzantine aristocrats. <laughs> and then he finally... Uh, um, he's told by the emperor to go defeat a rebellion by one of his brother-in-laws. And he says, well, if I succeed, you know, I'll be wrecking my family. And if I fail, everyone will say it's because I was disloyal uh, and there's no way out. So he finally uh, says that it's time for him to revolt. So, it, so he puts in his hat. So in the end, he sides with family, which is... Yeah, uh, a common a common theme, I guess, throughout the the period. Right. So, so he puts in his hat. He rebels against the emperor, and and he he makes it right. He's a very young guy, but he succeeds in becoming emperor, and he knits together support from his wife's family. He's just married into the Ducas family, which is one of the biggest families that has had a lot of money, and two of their people have been emperor. Um, and so that's a, a strong dynastic connection there. Mm -hmm. And he gets, with their support and with a whole bunch of other people who decide, all right, we're going to go for this kid. Uh, and he seems to be very smart and very militarily successful. Uh, how how yeah. old is he at the time? Like, um, you, I should have looked that up. I think he's 21 or 22. Okay. All right. Yeah, seriously young. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, he, when he's doing this. Um, and so I don't think when he managed to be, get crowned, I thought people gave would give him maybe, you know, three or four months tops mm -hmm. that he'd be able to hold on to this job. And that would have been a really realistic bet. Um, but he made it all the way up until 1118, right? So 40 years. So And dying of natural causes. So, he, yeah, he died of natural which, causes in his 70s, if, which is... You're a Byzantine, if you're a Byzantine emperor, that's... Uh, that's yeah. that's winning all the the lotto, you know. That's, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Anna, um, she's which child of his? Uh, she's a now she's a she's a Nana Nainid. Uh, she's a Dukas. She has that lineage. Right. Um, mm -hmm. She's very conscious of that. Um, right. She lets you know that. Um, yeah. And she is born when? Um, in what order? She's the their firstborn child oh, in 1083. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, so her, her, both of her parents are quite young at the time that she's born. Um, and her parents then go on to have eight other children. Her brother, John, is born next. And then after that, there are a total of five daughters and four sons in her family over the, the course of her years. Uh, so... Um, one of the things that Alexius does to help him stay on the throne is he gives authority over the entire civil administration to his mom, right? Because he's the who in this viper's nest of of com competition over who should get to be emperor. Who can he trust, right? Yeah, well, that's good. He picks his mom, Anna Delisania, uh, who takes care of things for you know a good fifteen years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and lets him stay always in the field. So he's a field general um, fighting, running back and forth from one end of the emperor to the other, uh, trying to keep things um, under control. Um, so she's a big force, I think, in Anna's upbringing. Mm-hmm. And young life, as well as her mother, Irina Dukiana. Um, so the Dukas family and the Komlenos family are the two that came together to support Alexius. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, in stories that people tell about this period, uh, people can tend to play up the rivalries between those two families, right? And so one of the th- questions for us is how far were they reconciled when Anna was a child? Mm-hmm. What... Um... She's then uh, extraordinarily well-educated uh, by any standard. Uh, yeah. Is that her father's choice, her grandmother's choice? or what, How does that happen, and how is she educated? Well, according to her funeral oration, which was written in the middle of the 12th century, um, her parents supported her getting the standard girl's education, mm-hmm. which was the ability to read New Testament and saints' lives, right? Mm-hmm. which is very simple Koine Greek, mm-hmm. very simple Greek. You can read that, and that's just, that's nice. And, you know, girls should be able to do that. Um, and she was determined to learn more. And they say that her parents opposed, uh, both parents said this was inappropriate for a girl to study classical Greek, um, but she did it anyway in secret. (laughs) And she uh, worked with with eunuchs and very, very old men (laughs) to get herself her education. And then once her parents saw that she was really determined and that she wasn't going to give up, they started to support her learning more and just saw her as a very exceptional person Mm -hmm. that she learned classical Greek. So she studied ancient Greek philosophy. She read all of Aristotle and all of Plato. She read all of the ancient tragedies of Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles and the comedies of Aristophanes. Um, she read all of that, all of the ancient um, poetry. Uh, she also studied history, read all the classics there. She studied uh, medicine extensively, knew Galen inside and out. She knew astronomy and science and just became, uh, you know, at her height and an extraordinarily well-educated person, easily one of the most well-educated women of the entire Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's what, Hildegard of Bingen, Mike, I don't know who else would yeah. be. Right. In terms of classes, it depends how you, you yeah. define education, but right. for classics? Classics, it's uh, possible to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are, is she, her father lives a long time. She's going to be what? She's just, she's in his, she's in her fifties when he dies. So that's yeah. uh, that's a very, what are some of those events? Uh, describe a couple of the events of his reign that will later be the fodder for her history of her father's life and times. Right. Well, uh, her history, the story of his uh, growing up and the ascent of his career from one of many smart generals to the emperor is a great story in her history. And then her his efforts to fight the Turks on the one side and the Normans on the other. Um, she uses metaphors from oh, the Homer's Odyssey, you know, where Odysseus is constantly buffeted by the seas of fate that throw one thing at him, and then there's another thing, and there's another wave, and there's another wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are constant waves of rebellions and barbarians invading. Um, the big one, of course, is the advent of the First Crusade, right? Okay. Uh, so um, when 1099, they managed to conquer Jerusalem, it's 1096, they arrive in Constantinople. This f- uh, a freakish, sudden... 
<laughs> swarm of western grasshoppers that appears yeah. from nowhere for no explanation that anyone can possibly conceive. And yet, uh, at least Pope Urban had announced that he had, that had, did Alexius appeal to help uh, to the Pope, actually? did he Had he appealed to Westerners for uh, help against the Seljuk, the, the Turks? It's it's very clear he was interested in hiring more Western mercenaries. Okay, he really liked having Western mercenaries in his armies, and it's clear that he wanted that. Um, there's a controversy. For a long time, everyone said, well, of course he didn't mean a crusade, right? Yeah. Um, and it makes no sense in terms of Eastern theology to go on crusading. That view is the one that Anna puts in the Alexiad, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're reading her, she's saying, oh, this is a horrible thing. These people are insane. They, it makes no sense. This is not good Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right? And, of course, my father was completely unaware and he was, it was, had nothing whatsoever to do with it. A scholar named Peter Frankopan has recently wrote a book on the First Crusade in which he's looking at all the other sources and said, well, actually, it makes a whole lot of sense for Alexius to be appealing for help. Mm-hmm. And he might not have thought about it in the theological terms of the Crusaders. Um, but trying to reevaluate his role um, by critically reading Anna's Alexiad, mm-hmm. right? That her story she tells about her dad is not necessarily everything he really did. Right. She's also writing in the period of the Second Crusade and in the period where the empire is under increasing pressure to support the crusading movement. And a lot of people are saying, hey, this isn't how we thought of religious warfare before these guys showed up, but maybe they have a point. Maybe we should be working hard to make sure that these holy sites stay in Christian hands. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's some people in Constantinople who get convinced that the crusading movement is really maybe not that bad, maybe something they should get behind. Mm-hmm. And other people, like Anna, who think it's ridiculous and awful and stupid. Right? So that's a live debate at the time that she's writing. Right. So, of course, she's going to back read that debate into the Alexiad. Right. And describe her father doing those things that she would like her nephew Manuel to do. Speaking of her nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, she, so she, when her father dies, um, many, uh, well, lots of contemporaries then allege, I referred to this in the introduction, that mm-hmm. Anna conspired to basically remove her brother, eliminate her brother in some, well, and put her husband on the throne instead. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a big, well, subtext of the Alexiad. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly one of the ways uh, that uh, she's been interpreted. Um, yeah. What's your take on all this? I know that, uh, but go, go ahead. What's your take on all this? Des- describe the controversy yeah. and then your take on it. Yeah, the um, what you describe is what most people think. Yeah, most people when they read the Alexiad see, oh, the backstory to this is that she wanted to be empress, she wanted her husband to be emperor, and she's really upset, and she's writing in this monastery because she's out of power, right? I don't think that reflects the reality of the Alexiad at all. Mm-hmm. And I think when you read the Alexiad the way I do, there becomes very little reason to see her as having any role in this aborted attempted coup, which in fact had no results, right? Uh, nothing in fact happened. Um, most of Anna's Alexiad is classicizing Greek history that reads like any other military political Greek history. So right? she, by that you mean she's going back She's taking the well. She's she's taking Homer and Thucydides and sort of combining mm-hmm. them together to tell the story of her own time. 
uh, right. using right. them as templates, uh, using them as word ch uh, word chests. So using them, all those those things, yeah. combining them together to to I don't know ele to elevate her own contemporary history. Uh, well, it's like how do you how do you tell the story about a battle? How do you describe the battle? Uh, you use Achilles. You use Achilles, man. I mean, because that's like the that's the battle. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, certainly Achilles gives you um, sort of moments of personal heroic action. Yeah. For the overall structure, you're going to be writing them the way that Polybius and Thucydides and Xenophon wrote battles. Sure. There's structures, there are beginnings, middles, and ends yep. of methods of telling it that makes it classicizing history, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what she's doing, right? However, she breaks in certain key moments and she switches into a different voice in which she's an hysterical mourning woman. She's crying her eyes out and she's saying that what she has suffered is greater than what anyone has ever suffered. And the mourning for her father and her mother and her husband is just sending her into spasms of weeping and wailing, mm -hmm. right? And then she says, all right, now it's time for me to dry my eyes and take up writing history again. And then she switches into this regular historical voice, mm -hmm. right? So for generations, people have been looking at this and saying, what's wrong with her? All right, ostensibly she is saying she's sad because she's mourning her husband and her parents, all of whom died in old age of natural causes in the Middle Ages, decades before she's writing. Right? Mm -hmm. so nobody buys that. And scholars think, all right, what's making her so upset? And so the question becomes, how do we explain how upset she is in the Alexiad? And then people latch onto the story of this effort to perhaps supplant John with somebody else, right? And say that she's upset because she's politically disappointed. Mm -hmm. And then they use that to read back into the Alexiad what's going on. She's uh, she's upset because she was an empress or she's upset yeah. because something like that. So right. obviously you don't buy that. No. Uh, what's she doing? She's, um, the classical Greek history is stuff that men said about battles and politics, right? And it's public sphere things, which in Anna's culture, women weren't supposed to be talking about at all. What women are supposed to be doing is staying home, only going outside of the house for religious observances like the ancient Greeks, and they're supposed to take care of their families. They're supposed to be doing clothing making and child tending, and they're not supposed to talk about politics. They're not supposed to talk or even think about battles and things, right? So there's a real conflict between what do you need to do to be a great historian. You need to have, you need to be interested in politics. You need to have experience in politics and experience in war, right? So Anna didn't have those things. How is she going to counter that? Um, and all of the ways in which she's weeping and wailing are ways that she's trying to seem like she's both a good woman and a good historian. So the crying is designed to make you feel sorry for her. What she's saying is, I'm a poor old widow, and oh, I'm so lonely. So the reader is supposed to say, oh, the poor dear, oh, that poor old lady, right? With pity and condescension, mm -hmm. which then makes you feel less angry at her for being so arrogant as to say that a woman could write about history. But since right? we, we don't have those cultural spectacles yeah. on, we don't see that. We, we right. take it in a different way. We can't figure out what's going on. Right. So when you think of, you know, in the first chapter of my book, I write all of the characteristics that you need to have to be a historian, mm -hmm. and those are all masculine characteristics. Right. I mean, how many other Greek historians are women? 
in, yeah. in round terms, right? She's the only one. She's the only one. I mean, the, right. the history of Greek. History. Yeah, yeah. As far as I've been able to figure out, she's the only woman to write a real history in Greek before the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Right. So we have people writing historical novels who are women in the 19th century, but an actual academic, you know, a, a history according to standards. She's the only one before the you know, the Second World War. It's a long so, time. It's a, it's um, a, it's a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there are these obvious reasons why women didn't write history. So I started the project by asking myself, why didn't Greek women write history? Mm -hmm. And if you answer that question, then you know the problems Anna's trying to deal with. And then you can see that's what she's doing. Mm -hmm. She's trying to counter the idea that she's arrogant. She's trying to counter the idea that she's being a bad girl by leaving her house right so these um, problems that you then see explain all of her weeping and wailing and her claims for her isolation and oh I don't talk to anybody there's this really I mean it's almost funny a scene in which she's trying to describe her sources in which she's doing a whole lot of no-nos for women she's talking about how she went and interviewed lots and lots of men that she wasn't related to right uh, to get her sources she also says she actually went on campaign with her parents right so she in fact she left the house she went out she saw this stuff for real and every time she makes one of these claims that would get a 12th century audience to say oh my goodness she didn't do that oh horrible she's a horrible horrible woman she then says oh but i'm so sad i miss my daddy i miss my husband and i'm so alone i haven't talked to anybody in years like you just said you interviewed guys about things uh -huh. and then she says well now back to the sources as i was saying i collected all my inter my information by conducting these interviews and talking to old veterans and so how did she do her research? You said she goes on an interview. She's in the monastery. She leaves the monastery to go on interview trips. On what does? <laughs> I mean, what's the monastery is another thing that's made up by okay. modern historians. She, we have the charter to her mother's monastery, in which we know that um, she had a couple of they're called palatial apartments. Oh. So she owned two palaces in the precinct of the monastery. But it's really clear, it's explicit that you can go in and out of your palatial apartment and not obey any of the rules of the monastery. And you can have your, your male and female friends come to visit you. And none of the things, the rules for the nuns apply to the the you know, the Khomeini women who are living in their palatial apartments. So it's a, a, and, co a condo in a monastery. And that's, exactly. And it's basically, yeah. It's it's a high end. She gets uh, one third of all the water from the spring in the monastery. Well, that's nice. I mean, some people like golf course communities. Some people like monasteries. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think one of the things that she, the reason why she might like to hang out in her monastery condo, which was very high end, mm -hmm. uh, was that it'd be a safe place to talk with guys when her husband's off campaigning. Right. Okay. You know, it's a safe place for her. You know, if she wants to talk about philosophy, she's uh, commissioning treatises on Aristotle at this time and has like a lively intellectual community. You know, if you could imagine if you're a Satilian scholar in Constantinople, it's also scandalous for you to go talk with the princess where her husband's out of town. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you do it in the monastery condo, um, it's maybe a little less scandalous. Okay. It's quiet. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, this idea that she was forced to stay there is just, 
you know, it's way people built up the story of her as this, the power hungry woman who got cast from uh, glory and is stuck in her monastery brooding in hatred. Right. Uh, Arrogant hatred, all the rest of the sort of things that came in any sort of introductory class, uh, introduction to Anna, yeah. that's what you learn yeah. about her. Well, you, you learn about the arrogance and hatred because that's, um, it's all the things that she does to seem like a good, nice woman in Byzantine culture. They might have worked for the 12th century. They absolutely don't work for us. They completely backfire. So everything she does to seem demure, she never talks about her skills. Which she has to explain that she has skills because no one would expect a woman to be able to do anything other than read hagiography. But every time she talks about her skills, she also does one of these things that's designed to make the audience feel sorry for her and mm-hmm. say, oh, we're dear, right? Mm-hmm. But since we don't see that, she just seems unhinged. Yeah. We don't appreciate, basically, I guess, the tropes of Greek rhetorical pathos. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it, there's something, I mean, we can move out from this, it says something about the way in which all historians will be misread mm-hmm. <laughs> after their time. Right. Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. I think for her close contemporaries, she might have pulled it off that yeah. it's possible for her to be a good woman and a good historian. But everyone who's read her, I think even one of the people who was reading her at the very end of the 12th century, Nikitas Koniatis, mm-hmm. who does a, a chop job on her family to, because <laughs> he was serving the administration that led to the empire being conquered by the Fourth Crusade. Mm-hmm. And so when he writes his history, he's blaming everybody except himself. Right. Right. And so he um, says that the, the worst things he could possibly think of about her family to explain how this dynasty has been corrupt from forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among that, he has some accusations that she's bloodthirsty and wanted to murder her brother and these other things. Um, so I think he might have read the Alexiad and thought that she was arrogant and power hungry. Right. Uh, and transgressive because of course in this culture for a woman to even be interested in politics would mean that she was a transgressive not particularly good woman because mm-hmm. right? she's not demure and not supportive of male authority right? well, but ever since then the Alexiad has been pretty you know radically misread I think mm-hmm. people just don't know what to make of her her weeping and wailing um, and but they see her arrogance coming through clearly right mm-hmm. they Every time she has to stand up for herself and say, I know how to write. Yeah. And I have studied Aristotle, right? People see that and think that she's just crazy full of herself. And, and she does have contempt for her father's enemies, like any good yeah. Byzantine should. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the yeah. Bohemond, the Norman, I mean, all the his father, whose name I forget, all these people are, you know, dirt beneath her sandal um there's just no way that she will tolerate mm-hmm. their their presumptions and all the rest of it and that that gets on the nerves of the of the uh, modern reader as well i suppose yeah. certainly she does yeah. not seem to fit some uh idea of uh the, a, a nobly objective historian because she ain't right right Right. She's, it's interesting, This the objectivity thing is really hard for her mm-hmm. because one of the key virtues for a girl in this culture was to be supportive and loyal to her parents. Right. right? Um, so she says again and again, I am going to be an unbiased historian. I'm going to tell you my, my daddy's faults, right? But you know I love my daddy, right. right? And we also don't see how all of her I love my daddy stuff is designed to counteract the fact that she's letting us see his dirty underwear. Mm. Right? There's one scene, one of my favorites, where um, 
he's he's losing a battle and he's brought the veil of the Virgin Mary with him as a, a holy relic to help him win, but he loses anyway. And so he's running away and he hides it in a bunch of bushes and flees. <laughs> <laughs> and this is... She's letting us know that he hid one of Christendom's most holy relics in some bushes and ran away because it was too heavy, right? Uh Um, But she does this by talking about, my daddy is so brave, he fought so well when it came to run. Everyone said, you have to save the army, we'll all be in danger if you're lost, you must flee. Like, no, I must fight. Yes, you must flee. Okay, I'll flee. But, you know, and then he smote one Scythian with a sword and he knocked one's arm off. And then he, you know, uh, dressing it up like it's the most heroic, fabulous thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right? So it comes across like she's really sycophantic and really loves her dad. But if you can see from her perspective, trying to balance the idea, she has to look like she loves her dad. Otherwise, she's an awful person. Right. Um, and she does let us know we would if it weren't for her text, we'd never even know that he lost the battle, let alone that he hid Mary's veil. In the bush. What um, do you have any uh, anything from her that you could read? I just uh, before we uh, finish, do you have a, a quote or or something from her? Um, I was thinking perhaps it's a it's a long, fun, gorgeous book. But I was thinking I'd read you the paragraph where she's describing some of the first crusaders. Sure, sure. Great. Okay. I would like here to give a clearer and more detailed account of the matter. According to widespread rumors, the first to sell his land and set out on the road to Jerusalem was Godfrey. He was a very rich man, extremely proud of his noble birth, his own courage, and the glory of his family. Every Celt is anxious to outdo his peers. The upheaval that ensued as both men and women took the road was unprecedented within living memory. The simpler folk were led on by a genuine desire to worship at our Lord's tomb and visit the holy places. But the more villainous characters, in particular Bohemond and his like, had an ulterior motive, for they hoped on their journey to seize the imperial capital itself looking upon its capture as a natural consequence of the expedition. (laughs) Bohemond disturbed the morale of many nobler men because he still cherished an old grudge against the emperor. Peter the Hermit, after his preaching campaign, was the very first to cross the Straits of Lombardy with 80,000 infantry and 100,000 horsemen. He reached the capital via Hungary. The Celts, as one might guess, are in any case an exceptionally hot-headed race and passionate. But once they are motivated, they become irresistible. <laughs> the, Kel- the, the Celts being what she refers to as all, all Westerners are Celts. Yes. Just as yes. all Arabs refer to everyone as a Frank, um, wh- yeah. wherever they're from. Um, yeah. Finally... What do you think we can learn either from um, Anna as a as a historian? What can historians learn from Anna as a, as a practitioner, or what can we learn from sort of the the way that we've misinterpreted her um, for so long? What does that, what sort of problems does this what pro- mm-hmm. sort of problems does that throw up? Sorry for the diffuse questions, but um, that's right. I think 
it's important when you're reading any history to try to keep in mind what is the author trying to get me to think and feel about the history, right? Which yeah. is, you know, the basic question for Anna, rather than saying, oh, she seems upset, what made her upset? The better question is, what is she trying to get me to feel by crying, right? What is she trying to get me to do? Um, and that's really clearly changed my reading of the Lexiad. But I think for even contemporary histories and all other histories, you know, what's the the intellectual outcome the author is hoping I'm going to reach? So what's the, what's the rhetoric of the historian that I'm reading? Yeah, exactly. Rather than the data that he's that he or she is trying to convey to my head. Right, right. You can think about the data, too. Oh, right? yeah, you're allowed to. Yeah. The data. Yeah. But no one writes a history book without some kind of hope yes. that people are going to change their minds about something, yeah. right? I mean, or maybe, have some, yeah. Have an emotion, even an emotional experience sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think most historians, now that you strive to try to have a history that's going to have an emotional impact on the reader, mm -hmm. right? Even though we're not all that upfront about saying that or talking about that, yeah, uh, yeah. it's true. Yeah. It's true. Um, that's and that I think can help you think uh, have a better understanding of any history text that you you're reading. And that's certainly what Anna's taught me. Our guest today has been Leonora Neville, author of Anna Comnena: The Life and Work of a Medieval Historian. Leonora, thanks for, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's fun to talk about Anna. <laughs> For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG Studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>